1: Close your eyes and imagine back to your childhood, or even last week, depending on how cool you remained as you grew up. You're all bundled up, having a great time sledding, and you decide that you're gnarly enough to slide down head first. You take a running start and dive onto your sled, shrieking with joy as you hurtle down the hill, snow kicking up into your eyes. If that sounds familiar, you're cooler than I am, and you need to check out Skeleton. Skeleton is an Olympic sport that In short, is one of the most extreme versions of sliding down an icy hill you can find. Today, professional skeleton athlete Katie Tannenbaum joins me to explain Skeleton better than I just have, including the ins and outs of the sport, how she practices despite living in a different hemisphere than the courses, first-hand experience of why helmets are just so important, and much more. My name is Tommy Butler, and you're listening to The Ocho. Hello, everybody. I'm here with U.S. Virgin Islands pro-skeleton athlete, Katie Tannenbaum. Thanks so much for joining me.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So right off the bat, I just want a quick elevator pitch on what the sport of skeleton racing is. I know a lot of people have heard of bobsledding and luges up there, too. Skeleton, I hadn't, until I like started doing more research, I hadn't separated much from luge in my head so what is skeleton racing
2: so skeleton racing is basically extreme sledding um (laughs) but (laughs) one so you mentioned bobsled and luge already and so usually when people are not familiar with skeleton i will mention one of those sports just to put them in the right um environment because we compete on the exact same mountain ice track so if you can picture a bobsled track skeleton competes on the same thing um we are it's an individual sport where bobsled is a team sport um and in skeleton we go down the track on a low flat sled on your stomach going head first
1: is there a rivalry between the different sports for like (laughs) do skeleton athletes think of luge athletes as not quite as hardcore since they're going on their back with their feet first
2: I think people outside of the sport, I've heard some, some jokes and like, uh, you know, seen some feeds that, that have some, some funny references to stuff like that. But, um, skeleton and bobsled are under the same international governing body, whereas luge is under a different international governing body. And so we're actually not around luge athletes a lot. We compete on all the same tracks, but always at different times. Whereas with skeleton and bobsled, our races are always together it's it's one like a bobsled and skeleton event would have races going on for both sports over the same time period and so we're on tour together traveling together so there is a little bit more of that between um bobsled and skeleton, i would
1: say interesting so yeah on your instagram you mentioned that or one of your things in your bio is no it's not like cool runnings obviously cool runnings is about bobsledding it's the jamaican bobsled team is do you get that question a lot if skeleton is similar because I, you're in the same uh or like racing at the same time
2: i get i get that reference a lot um and so i usually say well um it's, I do a different sport and I'm not from Jamaica and I'm not from a different country, do a different sport, but sure, just like cool runnings. Um, but you know what? So I used to think I got that reference a lot because I'm also from the Caribbean and cool runnings got Jamaica and they're from the Caribbean, even though I do a different sport than the one in the movie. But then I once was actually in an elevator with a friend of mine that does skeleton for Australia and some people started talking to us and she was kind of doing more of the talking. And they said the same thing to her. They made a Cool Runnings reference to her. And then I once heard a bunch of bobsledders talking about how they get it all the time. And this wasn't even, this was U.S. and Canadian bobsledders and stuff. And so I realized that Cool Runnings is just um, one of people's, it's, it's one of the greatest ex- ways that the sliding sports have been exposed to people.
1: If you haven't seen Cool Runnings, I feel for you. It's an old, meaning early 90s Disney movie about how the Jamaican bobsled team made it to the Olympics in 1988. Now, it's a comedy movie, so it's not an entirely true retelling, of course, but it's a great underdog story, and you're going to want to watch it or rewatch it after this like I did.
2: People tend to relate sliding sports back to Cool Runnings because it's one of the only things they're familiar with as far as sliding sports go. And do you
1: find that? So it doesn't matter
2: what country, and it doesn't even matter if it's the same sport. I'm sure luge athletes also get a lot of cool running references as well.
1: (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) Do you find that to be a really cool thing about, uh, or like the fact that Cool Runnings is able to bring more fans to this sport through uh, through that connection?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it is still bringing fans to the sport. The movie's pretty old at this time, but that is a good point. I mean. But yeah, I mean, it definitely created a lot of exposure for the sport at the time, you know, when, when it was made. And yeah, it still continues to. I mean, I think you actually, you're right. I think a lot of people have seen it, even if, um, you know, it was made before they were born or whatever. So, um, yeah, it, it, it is good exposure for the sport. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's telling one specific story, um, so that, you know, you don't get like a, big picture of what bobsled is but but it's yeah it, it's good for the sport having having that exposure by having a, a disney i think it's a disney movie made uh about <laughs> about the sport
1: that's a good question i haven't seen it in so long that i can't remember who made it i just yeah, remember, it feel, I remember it
2: feels like a Disney movie. <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> so you mentioned uh that part of that connection as well was the uh that you're from the caribbean how as a native californian racing for the virgin islands do you get into a winter sport like skeleton
2: um seeing it wanting to pursue it just a lot of ambition um yeah i mean it's definitely not the most accessible sport i had seen it on tv um for years before i ever went and did it and um i was in 2010 i was actually at the vancouver winter olympics in person and Saw it live, and that's, that's when I was finally like, you know, I'm going to have to get on an airplane just to go try this sport, but where I live, people do the same thing to go skiing, so, you know, why not? And, and that's what I eventually ended up doing, is, you know, having to fly somewhere just to try it for the first time.
1: Sorry to interrupt, but it's time for a word from our sponsors. The wait is finally over. Football's in full effect, and the NBA is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on everything imaginable this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any other place online. Head to BetOnline today and use promo code ARMCHAIR to take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. How long have you been a skeleton athlete? When was that first time that you tried it?
2: So that first time was, um, I mentioned that I saw it at the 2010 Olympics in person. And it was shortly after that. So sometime later on in
1: 2010.
2: Wow. So yeah, so for over 10 years now.
1: How long did it take for you to get from, I want to try this to being a professional athlete?
2: So I started after about a year of, um, just training, like just doing the sport a lot over the course of the winter, I started doing some kind of entry-level races and then built kind of built my way up, like getting, going up to higher level races from there.
1: What is it about skeleton that you love so much? Is it the adrenaline rush or the speed or being Zen in a very chaotic environment?
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's interesting that you, that you mentioned that or that you knew that right off the bat, because it very much is that. So, I mean, everything that you mentioned, you know, when I first saw it, it just looked really fun to me. It looked to me like the same thing you do when you're little and you go sledding and you're trying to go faster and you start to like build ramps and, and do, you know, do different things, make it more challenging. So to me, it was basically like, Ex- the best version of that like why why would you not want to go sledding down this like perfectly
1: groomed mountain of
2: ice um.
1: <laughs> well I can think of so- a couple of reasons and we'll talk about those <laughs> but
2: <laughs> yeah so I mean when I talk to people about what I do most people say it seems crazy but you know a small percentage of people will say oh that seems like so much fun and to those people I always say you should try it if that's how you feel about it then you you should try the sport because that's how i felt when i first saw it. i didn't see anything that looks crazy i saw and i thought that looks so much fun how do i do that
1: i love every sport that i want to talk about on this podcast is one that i see and i'm just like that's so cool how (laughs) is it accessible at all do you think to do this uh for someone who just wants to try it how did you find a place to try it i guess is what i'm asking
2: you know, I knew that... So the first time I tried it was in Park City, Utah. And I just... Because I lived in the Virgin Islands and I knew I was going to have to get on an airplane, um, I just looked... I just went directly to Park City. I didn't know where else I could go, but I knew that they had um, hosted an Olympics and that they had the sport. I had seen it during the Salt Lake City Games. Um, and so I just, like, specifically looked at that mountain and went there... Um, but there, there are definitely other places to do it, but there are not a lot and it is not an incredibly accessible sport. And I really wish that it was, uh, set up a little bit more like skiing, where if you want to go skiing, you just show up at the mountain that day and you buy a lift ticket and you just start going down the bunny hill and, um, and it's, it's that simple. Um, unfortunately there are far less skeleton mountains as there are skiing, snowboarding, mountains and um it is a little bit harder to make arrangements to go do it. But you you certainly can and it's kind of the same concept. You start as a bunny hill. You start lower down the track and you can rent equipment and all that. Um but it, it is it is more work to make that happen.
1: It's a lot harder to find a spot where you can put in all those tight curves as opposed to using literally just a mountainside <laughs> for skiing.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the mountains that most of the mountains, um, that have it it actually has an artificial, um, like frame, like it has a concrete frame with artificial refrigeration in it. So it's not just like, I mean, skiing, I guess they, they make artificial snow, but uh, I guess the concept would be to just be on natural snow on a natural mountain face and and those are groomed as well, but I think the amount of, the amount of work that goes into building a skeleton track, um, can be a little bit more to, to make the ice. But because most of them are artificial and they have this huge infrastructure of this, this concrete frame of the track with this ref- internal refrigeration, they're very, very expensive to build. And that's a big reason there's a lot less of them. And then, um, you know, they're, they're expensive to maintain and they really, have to be really managed well in terms of being heavily used in order for them to have good revenue and be sustainable. Um, There are ones that open and then shut down because they, they're just not financially viable.
1: How often are they being used? How often do races happen or are they also used for training and fun?
2: Yeah. In the winter, you know, they're, they're pretty heavily used because, There are so few of them, and so you know. You mentioned the three different sports that use the same track: skeleton, bobsled, and luge. And those are those are the sports that exist at like an Olympic level. But there are actually other things that go on on these mountains, and there are. um, uh, You know, you mentioned going and trying it. One of the ways that um, the tracks make it accessible for people to try is they do what they call like tourist rides, or you can go and you can pay. And you can sit in the back of a bobsled and you're not driving it, you have a professional driver, but you and your friends can go and just hop in the back of a bobsled and go down the mountain. And so um, there's a lot of stuff like that going on, as well as like you mentioned, training. And there are some people that go and train and do it recreationally and master's leagues and and young kids and development programs and, and all that kind of stuff. So. They are pretty heavily used when they're open, but they are, you know, they're seasonal, and so they're closed in the summer, um, and and all that time those venues are, are sitting unused.
1: How many skeleton athletes would you say there are that are professional uh, competing athletes?
2: That's a yeah, that's a uh, hard metric, I guess. If you defined it as people that have an international world ranking um you could actually go and look that up and it's it's small it's in the hundreds um and then you know beyond that you might have people that compete at like an, a national level and then you have people that do it recreationally or young kids or or whatever maybe
1: i don't know if but I it's I w- small <laughs> i'm sure i i can't imagine letting letting my kid go down a uh or to skeleton at a very young age, unless they're right at the bottom, seeing how fast it can go. But once yeah. you know how to do it, I'm sure it's much, uh, much safer.
2: Yeah. And I would say that kids definitely what you know, when I talk about kids doing it, that is still kids start it at an older age than other sports that um, don't involve that kind of speed. So a lot of mountains have age restrictions on, Um, how old you have to be to even be able to get on the mountain. And some of those are as old as early teens. Um, And so, and so, yeah, it is quite a bit older Um, in the United States. That age tends to be a bit older than it is in Europe In Europe. They really start to develop the athletes um, at a younger age. And actually in some of the um, areas where they do have these mountain tracks, they, they do this in school as part of like their physical education programs. Or you, you can choose to do it like as like an elective physical education.
1: That's awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I would be surprised if I, if you had that opportunity and then didn't take it. You got to try it once <laughs> if you have the opportunity.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would feel the same.
1: So going to or starting to imagine the race day, what is it like? screaming down a course at 80 miles an hour (laughs)
2: um well so back to something you mentioned earlier about it being very zen i mean when you do it this much and at at this at a high level it's it doesn't seem like you're going as fast as you're going i mean things slow down and, and you're able to to process things and so um yeah i mean you're really uh really in the moment and it's a very Um, it's a driving sport so you know a lot of people ask like is there are you doing anything besides laying there and and it's like yes of course it wouldn't be a sport if you were just (laughs) (laughs) there would be no competitive factor if you were just laying there but I mean I also understand why people ask that question because that's kind of what it looks like and and the driving is really really subtle um but it is it is a driving sport we are steering the sleds um but it is um you know, these are like micro movements that you're making. And, and so you do have to be in that very kind of Zen, um, focused zone.
1: Would you say that you're experiencing it almost in slow motion as you're, as it's happening or does it just feel like you need to react fast?
2: Um, I mean, both, you definitely need to react and respond quickly, but it does, it does slow down. But, more you do it and the more familiar you know you you get very familiar with the with the courses with the tracks and and so yeah it it definitely slows down compared compared to if you took someone and had them just go down it for the first time in their life it would it would feel like they were screaming down the course (laughs) i'm sure yeah
1: how so you mentioned that you are turning the sled what is the mechanics of turning a sled
2: Good question. So if you think of the frame of the sled as basically rectangular, if you were to pull all the, the top off and get into the inside of the sled, you basically have like this rectangular frame and you have runners. That's what's in contact with the ice or a lot of people use the word blades in the sport. We don't actually use the word blades. We call them runners. But, um, and you have two runners going front to back and those runners are then kind of attached to basically the four corners of that rectangle and the runners are not flat they have an arch in them they have um and so you're basically steering the sled on those those four corners of that rectangle at over like a central pivot point where those runners are in contact with the ice
1: interesting so yeah. by pressing down on different corners you're able to move yourself away from the wall or towards the wall if you it's, want to hit a corner hard.
2: To steer yeah, you're able to steer the sled. You're basically to able to like engage one of the runners into the ice more. Um, yeah, to to steer the sled. And then we also um will use our toes to steer as well. So so when I'm engaging those four corners of the sled, that's for my shoulders and from my knees. Um and then because it's a very subtle uh steering like I mentioned, things like which like where your eyes go where you look which is true in anything um where you look is where you go so just little subtle movements of your head and then one of the more aggressive steering uh things that you can do is to to drag your toes on the ice because your sled only goes below your knees so your um the bottom part of your legs and your feet are not over your sled they're over the ice um, so you can drop your toes on the ice and that kind of acts like the same way a rudder on a boat does in terms of steering you. Um, you drop it on one side and that's going to slow down that side and the other side's going to speed up. Um, and so that's another way that we steer. You you want to limit the amount of toe steering you do just because you are dragging it directly on the ice and that creates friction and that slows you down. Um, but it's one of the, one of the stronger ways that you can steer as well.
1: So you do you have a lot of control over where uh, you're heading? I, I, what I mean to ask is like if you're going towards a wall, will, are you able to quickly revert course, or is it more subtle um, with especially how sharp some of these turns are?
2: So okay, so one thing I just want to clarify is when you say going towards a wall, so you're never going to be able. You're it's it's basically like. Um, a shoot or a giant like really long slide if you think about it so you're never or you, unless you end up in some really crazy situation you're never going towards a wall like head first
1: of course the walls yeah. are
2: on the on the yeah the walls are on the side of you so i just want to and i just want to clarify that for the listeners so you're you would be coming in contact with the walls from the side of your body so um because they're on they would be on your right and left side so how well you're able to avoid them oh, it depends on a lot of things so the when you're in the corners there's a lot of g-forces and a lot of pressure um that you that you feel when you go into those pressures and that those those corners spit you out with and so how much you can avoid a wall a lot of it depends on how much speed you have how much pressure you have coming out from a previous corner um but yes there are things that you can do to avoid the balls but typically like if you let's say you're hitting a wall on the right side of your body after coming out of a corner that was on your left like a right hand turn and you keep hitting the right side you really need to fix that in the corner you need to do different steering in the corner you're you're not going to it's not likely you're going to be able to fix that like after you get out of the corner onto the flat if you've been hitting the wall just a meter beyond that you know, that's, that's not enough time and there's too much speed and too much pressure pushing you in that direction.
1: Interesting. Uh, is every course different? Are there different, how long do you spend studying uh, a course before you are actually doing the timed race?
2: Um, Long enough to where you have it memorized for sure. I mean, usually, usually, um, before I'm even in the location of a new course, I would already um, have watched enough video, studied track footage, studied track maps to. At least, um, know kind of the basics. I mean, there's certain things you can't know until you feel them, but I definitely know how long the track is. I know how many corners it has and what direction they go in. And, and when I go down it for the first time, I'll know, okay, I'm in this corner and I know what's coming next. Um, and, um, and then, uh, once you are on site, we also will walk the tracks. I'll walk inside the track from top to bottom and, and see the ice. Um, before I go down it
1: does the yeah. uh, does the course change at all as more people take runs like I, I assume that the ice starts getting scraped away or ruts are made
2: yeah yeah so um, you know the big things stay the same all the corners are going the same way but um, definitely with weather conditions with how heavily the tracks being used and also just how the ice is shaped when it is groomed um all of those things those more subtle things can change um from day to day and even throughout the course of a race especially with something like weather um so yes yeah it absolutely does change but but we're talking about pretty more more subtle changes changes than uh, like i said the big the big
1: stuff all stays the same it would be really impressive if you could change the shape of the course by just going down it a couple
2: times? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm a big advocate for natural tracks that we, uh, you know, I mentioned a lot, most of the ones we race on are artificial and have that concrete frame. And that's why, you know, it's never going to change because that part is is permanent. um, And it's just kind of the ice and the shaping of the ice that's on top of that afterwards. Um, But with natural tracks i mean these are i'm talking about things that are built into the snow there's there's no framing and they melt in the summer and then they're rebuilt the next winter and um that's something that you could completely change year to year
1: that's really cool Uh, what is the uh is there a typical design or not design but are there like a certain number of turns and steep parts that you have to maintain or is there,
2: can you just sort of have fun? (laughs) (laughs) No, there, well, if you want it to be, um, like uh, eligible for, um, an international competition under um, the international bobsled and skeleton Federation, which is what our international races, um, fall under, then there are like, a bunch of standards and regulations that you would have to meet you could make anything you wanted for fun and there certainly are a lot of um kind of shorter tracks in the world or things like that that i've, I've never been to because we don't race on them um but yeah there's uh some of the different standards that we would have for it to be like a, a competition level track are the length the number of corners um there's certain corner variations that you have to have has to always have at least one uphill section. Um, and there, there's like a whole manual on on all the the detailed specifics, but even within that, there's still a lot of room for play and a lot of things that you can do differently. And, and every single one is different.
1: I'm sure the designers have so much fun fitting all that stuff in.
2: (laughs) I can't imagine trying to design it. I mean, it's, you really would have to like, the physics involved you really have to know and understand what's going to happen before people ever go down it because you don't want anyone you know you don't want to corner the pressures doing something that you didn't expect them to do and
1: (laughs) two really sharp 90 degree corners right next to each other that's not gonna work
2: I I really want like a full port screw corner where we go completely <laughs> upside down I mean there's certainly enough pressure on us in some of those high g force corners That I mean you know we do go beyond just um, where like my side is perpendicular to the ground I mean those those corners are rounded and you will go you know if you're going up towards the top of that you're beyond you know you're inverted you're it's almost like your your back is facing the the ground level um so there's certainly enough pressure to hold you there it would be really tricky to design but that's something i thought would be really really cool
1: that and a loop-de-loop those are the two things that i'm now looking forward to in the future (laughs) skeletons yeah
2: yeah (laughs) yeah you could do like a corkscrew one and then you could do a full like circle going upside down
1: that i think that would get a lot of viewers to see people do a full loop-de-loop at 80 miles an hour
2: I think it would, I think it would as well. People do it in motorcycles and stuff. Yeah.
1: Thought, like
2: the, um, you know, Evil Knievel or whatever. People, people do that in like cages with lions in there. So, you know, we can do it.
1: Maybe we need to design the first uh, even more extreme, maybe we need to come up with a new word for it at this point. Uh yeah. For <laughs> a new course. Well, I've,
2: all, I've always wished that X Games would take on some of the sliding sports because I think they would definitely push the evolution of, of the sport in kind of those types of directions. And that would be a lot of fun and and would definitely uh, attract a a wider fan base.
1: That's a really good idea. I think I'm trying to think if there are any other. Oh, well, I was going to say any other cold weather uh, things, but like snowboarding.
2: Yeah. And they do the crushed ice.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess that's another thing we have to do. (laughs) Write down a new course with loop-to-loop and corkscrew and then reach out to X Games.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Maybe it's Red Bull that does the crushed ice. Maybe that's different from the X Games. So apologies if I'm confusing those.
1: They are very similar in my mind as well. Maybe that's another podcast I need to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Katie mentioned Crashed Ice just then. I wanted to mention that Crashed Ice, which is now called Ice Cross Downhill, which I've just learned, uh, is another extreme sport where multiple people padded up similarly to hockey players race down courses that look a bit like dirt bike courses, except entirely made of ice, obviously, on skates. Definitely needs to be a future episode. It's crazy to watch. and Katie got it right in the end as well. It's done by Red Bull. so when you're when you start a race, you're running next to the sled and then you dive on top of it. Uh, is that sort of the biggest time, uh, is that the part where you really decide what your time is going to be
2: um it it shouldn't be because there's so much more that's such a short portion of the track and there's so much more track left that is dependent on how you drive your sled um but it's definitely a really important part of the sport um you know we are we're racing it's it's just the fastest one to the finish line that wins so um, the faster you are at that starting portion, that definitely helps. And then there's there's a lot of arguments that basically you're creating more velocity at the very beginning. And so that carries with you down the track. So if you are half a second, let's say, faster than someone at the start, you're going to be, if you drive the exact same all the way down the course, you're going to be a lot more than half a second faster than them at the finish and so with that in mind, the sport has really started kind of pushing for and recruiting people that are really fast at the start. And it definitely is a big component, makes a big difference. But you still have the whole course of um, driving your slide to do. And so if you take someone who's weaker at the start, but an incredibly strong driver and someone who's stronger at the start, that's that's not as good of a driver. Depending on those differentials, you know, usually, usually the person that's a stronger driver is going to win because, again, there's that's so much more length that you're covering um, with your driving skills, with your starting speed.
1: I'm very glad that's the answer because if it wasn't the answer, it would be a much different sport, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, and it, and and as people have really uh, pushed for faster and faster athletes at the start, it really actually has changed the sport. Um but like I mentioned earlier when people ask me are you doing anything but lying there, you know, i if it was just if the start was the only thing and we were just racing, then we might as well just do a foot race. Um, you know, if the if whatever happened after you got on your sled made no difference and you were just lying there, then there's no point in doing that part of it.
1: <laughs> of course. Just, <laughs> just get you <laughs> bolt out there.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh is there a specific body type or something that is makes you an inherently good skeleton athlete or is it anyone has a chance to win depending on how well they drive
2: i think that depending on what period of time what period in time you ask that question and also who you ask that question to you get a lot of different answers and i say that because there's I, I would say, no, there's not necessarily one specific body type because you have seen over the history of the sport, different, very different body types be very successful in the sport. Um, but I will mention a few things. The heavier you are, that tends to be the more advantageous and we are going downhill. Um, and then, um, you know, lo- kind of long and lean, getting getting that that weight and that mass from kind of being like long and lean tend, tends to be uh, there's a lot of athletes that meet that profile that are that are very good at the sport
1: interesting so you saying both would be really good
2: yeah it was, <laughs> he, well he would definitely be good at the start he would be good at the start and uh, you know if he could if he could learn how to drive a sled decently then you know but <laughs> I think he would definitely be be pretty successful
1: of course. Uh, so is that how big of a difference or is there any real difference uh, in the way uh, women's skeleton runs versus men's?
2: No, there are no differences uh, between like in terms of the rules or anything in terms of the way that that we race. Um, just two different disciplines. Women compete against women. Men compete against men. But the the races operate the same, and um, you know, men tend to be a little faster. They're they're faster at the start. They're bigger. They're heavier. Um, they're stronger. More powerful. Most all of those things. So, um, you know, you will see men's times will be faster than women's, as you would see in pretty much.
1: Interesting. Uh, is there? So how long does a single run last and how long are the, uh, are the courses?
2: So the courses are all the, around one and a half kilometers.
1: That's about a mile for all of you stuck in the imperial system, like myself.
2: They, they vary quite a bit. Um, well, they vary within a few hundred meters. Um, and then um, how long that takes... Around a minute, roughly. I would say most tracks that we race on are are somewhere between fifty seconds and sixty seconds. Um, there are the longest one in the world is is more like seventy to seventy five seconds. Um, but but most are somewhere around kind of the fifty five to sixty second range to get down.
1: That's a lot of. Of
2: course, of, of course, <laughs> depending on what kind of run you're having and who's who's driving the sled and all those things. But yeah, roughly roughly a minute.
1: Wow! All of that. All of this happens in one minute per run is crazy to think about.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a lot of ground to cover in a minute on a non-motorized
1: vehicle. If
2: you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can recall my sled a vehicle, but you know, without without an engine, it's all just human and gravity powered.
1: Yeah. What goes into making a sled, a skeleton sled?
2: Um, a sled builder <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so a lot of really, really precision machining and a lot of really, really strong materials because those those sleds are taking hits at you know upwards of eighty miles an hour. Um, you don't want your sled to be bending um, from. From that impact, even even in the smallest amount, because if your sled isn't tracking completely straight, um, that's going to cause you problems going down the course. So, um, you know, if you think about like when your car is not aligned properly and you can feel the wheel steering wheel kind of pulling you in one direction, that affects your driving. Um, So, you know, they need to be made where they're really really uh, precise in terms of being straight
1: interesting straight Uh, and
2: parallel and evenly balanced yeah
1: i'm sure because like with how little is actually touching the ice and as you said with if one was just slightly out of out of alignment that would be a ton of extra friction yeah another quick break here as i give another shout out to our sponsor bet online for those of you who are fans of bigger sports like football and the NBA, you're riding high with the playoffs and NBA season coming back. BetOnline wanted me to remind you that they're going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on everything imaginable, from game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props. BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any other place online. Head to BetOnline today and use promo code armchair to take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses.
0: Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop down menu that follows.
1: Speaking of being having a strong sled to take uh, hits if you're scraping up against the wall or anything, how dangerous would you say skeleton is for a even a professional athlete?
2: You know, I I used to say it's you know it's a lot less dangerous than things like football or even you know skiing. I I think there's a lot more injuries that you see in in a sport like that. Um, but with football, it's obviously you know referring to the head trauma, and there's been actually a lot coming out lately that that our sport is causing some of those similar things just because. Um, that ice is not completely smooth it is a bit chattery and there is a lot of pressure on your body um including on your head and your neck while you're going down the track um and so you are getting kind of like these tiny vibrations as you're as you're going down the track and so that's not even talking about you know the big hits which of course the big hits can be dangerous it's just a matter of how frequently are those really happening um you know we're not sliding into brooms at 50 plus miles an hour every day that's not a common occurrence so
1: if it um, was a common occurrence i don't think it would be as big news as it ended up being
2: yeah yeah exactly nor do i think the sport would still be around i have to get that under control
1: well maybe that's another thing to add to the extreme addition of extreme sledding which uh where you have to dodge brooms Alright, for those who haven't seen the video, we didn't make the broom example up out of nowhere. A few weeks before I reached out to Katie about joining me on the show, a video of her recent World Cup race in Austria went viral for exactly that reason. Halfway through the course, Katie turns a corner and the camera changes, showing a broom leaning against the wall in the middle of the track. The announcer just has a second to react in shock before Katie hits the broom at basically max speed, right in the helmet. Luckily, she was fine and even ended up taking a second run shortly after on a damaged sled. Crazy.
2: <laughs> yeah, so so you mentioned that the broom hit video that, I, you know, when I hit the broom, that was all over the place. And, and somebody had posted it on Reddit right after it happened, which is um, like the responses on there are just one of my favorite things I've experienced <laughs> in my whole career. and And there were some comments to that effect like, oh, I didn't know skeleton add and an obstacle element to the sport <laughs> and just all these all these things along those lines. So yeah, that's another another thing you could do is put put cones in and yes, you know make people go around and they've got you know in skiing they have to go around the flags so do something like that for us. <laughs> the flags just do. don't make it something that's as hard something that gives you know if you, do, if, you if you miss the line you're going for you end up hitting the thing you don't want it to be a broom ideally
1: exactly something that bends over like in skiing yeah. they hit they hit them on purpose to get the best line so uh hopefully it's not something that will shatter your ankle if you hit it <laughs> that hard
2: yeah uh, yeah
1: speaking of the broom first of all obviously glad that you're okay from that seeing you at the end of that run, jump up and give the thumbs up and, uh, just walk off on under your own power was, uh, so nice to see after how loud that was.
2: A lot of adrenaline going at that point. For sure.
1: <laughs> Did you, I assume you've watched the video from third person. Now you obviously yeah. experienced it. So you know how loud it was in real life, but, uh, did it seem worse to you in the moment or on the video?
2: That's a good question. Um, you know, in the moment, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it because after it happened and was behind me, I was, um, you know, that happened between corners six and seven on that track, which has fourteen corners. So I had more than half of the track left to cover, and I can't, I can't be focused on the, that thing that just happened, no matter how crazy and wild it is I've still got to drive my sled down the rest of the track. So, you know, when it happened in the moment, once, once it happened and was behind me, I was focused on, on driving the rest of the track. Um, so, so it really didn't get a ton of, a ton of thought at that time, except like, Oh, there's a broom in the track. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, i like, what the hell man? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I, us afterwards i mean i also didn't get to experience it as someone watching it um not knowing what was going to happen until they you know saw it for the first time like anyone watching it live um, but i had a lot of messages even by the time i got back to the
1: interesting the i read your facebook post uh about the whole experience and you said that uh it was, you were, I think the quote was, you were surprised by how unsurprising it was because that had happened before to Jane Channel or Chanel?
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, channel. Channel.
2: Yeah. It's Channel, although I always want to say Chanel because it sounds fancy. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah. I'm Jane Channel, a Canadian skeleton athlete in, uh, five years ago in, uh, or in 2015, um, and actually at the same mountain in Innsbruck, Austria.
1: That was the part that shocked me the most. How does that happen twice on the same mountain, let alone twice ever?
2: That's, you know, I talked to her a lot after that happened. And we were asking the same question. I think a lot of people were asking the same question. And in a, in a lot of the comments that I saw about it, you know, a lot of people were like calling out the track specifically. Like, what the heck's going on, guys? <sighs> um. Yeah, I mean, it's... You know, it's not. It shouldn't happen once. It shouldn't happen ever. So, it, you know, it is a problem. And they, with in in the her case, the tra- the broom was very clearly. It wasn't actually. It so in neither case was it really left in the track. In her case, it was. Okay, let me back up a little bit. There, <sighs> The people that maintain the track use brooms to get snow out of the track. So that's why there's a broom in there to begin with, if anyone thinks the broom's like totally out of place. No, they use the <laughs> brooms um, <laughs> to, to maintain the track and get snow out of the track. Um, and we're going down one at a time, about two minutes apart. And so if let's say it's snowing, the track workers have to get in the track and work in between those two minutes because otherwise they're not going actually be able to do any work during the entire race and um you know they're trying to maintain the best conditions we as the athletes that are racing certainly want them in there keeping the snow out right before we're about to go so they basically let someone go by and they jump in the track and they work for a minute and 45 seconds and then they jump back out of the track before the next person goes by so that's that's kind of the way that it that it typically works and they know based on where they are in the track you know about what time on the clocks above the person's going to be coming goodbye or hearing the voice of the track announcer like okay someone just started if they're near the top of the track they have you know a shorter amount of time to get out of the track as compared to someone who's near the finish line let's say um, And so in her case, this person just did not hear the track announcer clear the start for her. And they didn't realize that there was an athlete in the track um, until luckily not until it was too late. They were able to get out of the track, which could have been really devastating if they weren't able to. Um, but in the footage, you can actually, in, in that situation, um, when it happened five years ago, you can actually see them like trying to scramble and jump out of the track. And basically the broom got dropped in that like frantic moment of them trying to get out of the track as fast as possible.
1: That's Um, a really cool, uh, insider view because the video I saw, it's right at the very beginning for, uh, Jane channel. It's it seems like it's almost the very first turn or before that i think it's you can yeah, it was see like the a broom. Start, yeah. you can see the broom as the camera changes and mm-hmm. i was shocked at first to i was trying to figure out why couldn't anyone see it if it was just sitting there but if someone was jumping out of the track at that moment that does make a little bit more sense
2: Yes. Yeah. And then in my situation, what I have been told, but had not seen video footage of, is um, that the broom was blown into the track. Now, based on the way the broom was positioned when I hit it, it definitely didn't seem like that's how a broom would just end up if it was just moved by nature. It kind of seemed like it was pressing (laughs) against the side wall of the track. Um, but I will say that it was incredibly windy and gusty that day. Um, and I've had enough kind of race officials and people tell me that it, it was blown into the track that I, I guess I kind of like, I guess I believe it, but I still, I would love to see the footage of that happening, which apparently exists somewhere of the broom being outside of the track and the forces of just the wind gust actually picking it up and moving it into the track. Um So apparently that happened. I haven't
1: seen it. Um, I'm glad that you brought up that you were also (laughs) skeptical of that statement, because when I read that, I was thinking it does say here that it was very windy, but I can't imagine how windy it would have to be to move a broom, a very thin, relatively heavy object. So,
2: right, right. And we're not talking about like the broom you use in your house. We're talking about like the big, kind of like shop brooms, which are quite a bit heavier. So, it would really take a lot to pick that up. And I don't know if maybe it was leaning outside of the track. And so, it just kind of like got pushed over into the track. Um, but either way, it, you know, I think this is definitely a lesson that it, it shouldn't have even been left unattended that close to the track.
1: Oh, of course. Uh, what? So I think I read that your sled also took some damage in that, or yes, potentially yes. more than you did.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was actually really surprised, and I didn't realize it right away uh, until after I got out of the pack and... Um, I've been out of the track for a few minutes. Right when we get out of the track, we have to um, immediately step on a scale and get weighed. That's part of the there's um, there's weight rules and regulations within the sport. And so you're kind of there's some things going on. um, And it wasn't until I kind of like sat my sled down and and stopped for a moment and and took a good look at it that I realized there was some damage to it. So we, we had talked a little bit earlier about what makes up the sled um, when we build it and the things I was kind of talking about were the, the frame of the sled but in order to make it aerodynamic, that frame is covered up um, with like a carbon fiber sheet on the bottom. and um, that's the part that that got damaged. It basically had like a, a big chunk that came out of it and then like a crack going, going down it from, from that where that. China business.
1: Wow. It those your <laughs> helmet and your, uh, your mouth guard then must've done a lot.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They definitely, they definitely did their job. I mean, I, I'm, you know, if legally we have to race with a helmet, so going, I mean, I would never go down the track without a helmet and that's not uh, even an option. Um But you don't have to have a mouth guard in. But I definitely believe that even if I had had my helmet on as I did and I didn't have a mouth guard in, I would have gotten a concussion. I actually had, even with my mouth guard in, I had, um, like, my in my jaw for the next several days after this happened, it was just really sore and tight. And I had trouble opening my mouth all the way um, from that hit, which which was surprising. I mean, I would have never guessed uh, that would be like an injury that I would have from that. But, (laughs) but yeah, so I can only imagine if I hadn't had my mouth guard in
1: what I would have experienced.
2: I think it would have been really bad. So yes, I'm very pro mouth guard.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How has the, this broom incident affected you? Maybe not physically or mentally as much, but like, obviously I found that as a, when I was looking for someone to, uh, to talk to about skeletons. So have like, have you been getting more interview requests recently or anything like that?
2: Definitely there was, um, you know, I've, yeah, I've had a lot of people reach out to me as a result of it. Mostly people I already know, other athletes in the sport and stuff like that. The first 24 hours after it happened was really, I was actually kind of like overwhelmed because I like couldn't even keep up with the the messages that were coming in. Um, but you know, it's kind of honestly, it's kind of like a 15 minutes of fame. People see it. It's this crazy thing. And then they move on. So, um, you know, as it's gotten further from the event, it's definitely, uh, slowed down. Um, you know, I'm not going to be getting like, I don't expect to be getting like Nike endorsements out of this <laughs> or anything like that. I mean, that'd be cool if I did, but, um, you know, so, so, you know, yes and no, there has been, it definitely got some attention, but it's it kind of started to, to slow down and it just happened a few weeks ago
1: is was that the last race that you've done recently or have there been races in between
2: yeah that was the last race that I did so um, I was planning on doing one week of training after that in Germany um, and then come home for the holidays and because of that, I just decided to forego that week of training to just give myself this extended recovery period of time um, since it was about to be the holiday break anyway. We never have races like between Christmas and New Year's. Um, so I knew I was going to be having that time off. So it just made sense to me to just have have a good amount of time off to make sure I was okay from that. Um, and then I actually head to my next race um, two days from now.
1: Awesome. Uh, what are, I want to talk about training too, but before we get to that, what are some of your favorite career moments or highlights?
2: Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so I immediately want to respond with like race results that make me, that I'm like the most proud of. And then I can hear my sports psychologist in my head being like, talk, like think of process oriented things, like not (laughs) like, not like the results, but, um, so, so i'll try and i'll try and balance both probably my my um my most proud like race result was a race in switzerland that i had never raced there before um it's actually one of it's a natural track that we compete on i i really love the track it's really um basically like sliding on a completely different medium when you are on a natural track versus an artificial track um, but I hadn't raced there before, and we, I think for some reason some of our training got canceled and so we only had we had very few training runs and so I had very little experience on the track going into it. It's a really, really big field. Um, and I ended up I, I don't know I, I ended up finishing, I think fifth in the race, and I was really happy, really proud of it, really unexpected. So I don't know that was that was the race moment and i have, i've had better race results than that but i think that one because it was unexpected because it was a track i didn't have experience on um and and some of the just like the mental components that went into it like i was i was sitting well after the first heat we always um race two, we typically race two heats and your finish result is the sum of your two times so I was sitting in a good position after the first heat, and my kind of, um, like, natural defense mechanism was like, man, I hope I can just keep this position. And then somewhere in there, I just had this, like, mental shift of, like, that's, like, it's not the way I should be thinking about this. I can think of subtle mistakes I made in that first heat that i can go correct and i shouldn't be worried about like hoping i can just maintain this i know that i can go and have like a lot faster run and i ended up having doing exactly that having a lot faster run on the second run um and so i think even though you know i'm mentioning the the finish result and the placing that i was proud of i think a lot of it comes from just that that mental shift that i think led to that
1: awesome do you have any big future goals that you're hoping to uh, accomplish or future plans anything like that
2: Oh so many <laughs> <laughs> So many um <laughs> yeah um so the International Bobsled and Skeleton Federation just introduced uh a new discipline of monobob which is one person bobsled and I've never um, spent a lot of time in a bobsled before because it's a team sport and I don't have any teammates from the Virgin Islands that compete. Um, and so it's just never really been on my radar, but now that they've created a one man version, it definitely is. And so, um, I'm actually going to, going to try that, um, start trying that this winter. And I think it would be really cool to be competing in two different disciplines, two different sports.
1: That would be awesome. Also, Monobob is so much fun to say.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It is, it is. Good name.
1: So obviously we've mentioned the fact that you're, you live in the Caribbean on, in the Virgin islands. And skeleton isn't really a place that you can uh, do anywhere. You have to find one of those, uh, one of those courses. So where slash, how do you train for this during the year?
2: So in the winter, I am at those places where I can do the sport. So um, most of the winter, I'm on a competition tour, uh, like on the World Cup, where that um, you saw that broom incident happen in Austria. That was a World Cup race. So um, there's four different international competition tours that um, go on during each winter. Um, and so with those you're moving from track to track you go one place you race then you move to another track and you um, train and race there and so on throughout the winter so a lot of the winter is made up of that Um, and then in the weeks that there are not races um, specifically like in the preseason before the races have started you will just go to go to the different mountains that either you have access to or that you have races on that coming winter and just train there and just just get as much sliding in as you can um but every single track in the world is in the northern hemisphere and so um there are no no tracks open in the summer months um so we have a very forced off season and in that time um like a lot of other sports you're doing strength and conditioning training a lot of speed training for those starts um and anything else that, that you can do um, to gear up for the next winter, but um, you're not actually on ice, and that and that's the case regardless of where you live.
1: Interesting. Do you have a way of training for the transition from the running start to getting onto the uh, the sled?
2: Yeah, there are there are a few places. Um, most places that have skeleton and bobsled boot tracks. Will have some sort of start facility, um, whether it's dry land and it's a sled with wheels, or it's on ice, um, and it's just basically a recreation of the top of the track. And then you will do that sprinting start and load onto the sled, and basically it just goes downhill like you usually would at the beginning, and then immediately like goes uphill and takes you back. where you to where you started so you'll go uphill and then you'll turn around and, and go back the other way um and and yeah and you'll do you'll do repetitions of that throughout the summer
1: is the so when you're starting on an actual course there are grooves that you put the sled in is it does it feel the same to do uh the real thing as it does to do the training version
2: so it depends on if you are on ice or if you're on a sled with wheels. So these different facilities, some are definitely better than others in terms of, of how real it is, but the ones that are ice um, are, are very similar. Um, and then the, and then it kind of um, goes down from there. There's, there's ones with wheels, but they have kind of the same grade as the track, and those are more similar. And a lot of people set up like just kind of backyard homemade, kind of versions i mean i have a sled with wheels here in the virgin islands um but you know some people are just using it kind of on flat ground wherever they can and so you're just getting that because we're not just sprinting it's a very awkward hunched over (sighs) sprinting position so you know people are are training that um in any way they can so yeah you might be doing it on on flat ground or you might um you know be doing it on something with a grade but it's still dry land or if you have the ability to do it somewhere where there is still a way to do it on ice and that's beneficial but yeah you'll athletes will use whatever they have access to and people are pretty creative and and come up with some cool stuff i mean i've seen athletes recreate these facilities literally in their
1: what is a day in the life of a skeleton athlete i know that you're uh, as well as being a professional athlete, you're a math instructor at the University of Virgin Islands. What's it like to bounce between those?
2: <laughs> so that is outdated information. Is it really? Uh, it is so I, you have to tell me where you saw that. but if you if you heard it from the commentator during the race, he still likes to say that a lot, even though i he knows well, I've told him multiple times, that it's, <laughs> it's not the case anymore, but that's okay. Um, yeah, so Virgin Islands were hit with two really bad Category 5 hurricanes in the summer of 2017. Um, and at that point in time, I, I switched from teaching and started doing a disaster recovery, hurricane recovery.
1: Oh, that's really cool. I think I also found it on your, I did hear it from uh, the, the announcer, Based but it, it's also on your Wikipedia page.
2: Uh, oh yeah, that's not accurate either. I don't know who. <laughs> I don't know where. <laughs> that has that has several things that are not here and I don't know how. I've never submitted. I mean, I know Wikipedia gets information from the people, but I've never been one of the people to submit something. I think I've tried before, and it was a little more complicated than. I, so I gave up. Or, I don't know, but so I don't know how um, how to change that information. <laughs>
1: well then i apologize for spreading (laughs) misinformation
2: that's okay that's okay you know it was it was once true so it's not totally it's not a total lie
1: (laughs) yes uh what do you do as a as a uh disaster relief in disaster relief
2: yeah so um like i said those those hurricanes were were pretty big and pretty detrimental to virgin islands so the recovery efforts have been ongoing, even though it's been um, over three years uh, since then, but there's a variety of government-funded programs to help with the various relief efforts, Um, and in the position that I have now, I basically help the local entities apply for that government funding and work their way through the application process, um, which is pretty complicated, um, so that they can get get the hurricane relief funding and um, restore the damaged buildings or facilities or whatever it may
1: be. Interesting. Do you have any? Uh, do you use anything that you've learned in uh, either your former job as a math instructor or your current one? Uh, do you? I completely forgot how I said that sentence, so I couldn't end it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how do you incorporate all that into uh, skeleton, if at all? Do you use any of it Um, as a learning experience?
2: Yeah, I mean, the the math stuff certainly helps. We, um, you know, there's a lot, like I mentioned already, there's a lot of physics involved in our sport and also um, a lot of number crunching. I mean, we get, every time we train, we will get uh, what we call a time sheet, which has not just our finish times, but it has splits all the way down the track. Um, And you, you see those not just for yourself, but for everyone else. And you know at what corners those um, or what points on the track those times were taken. And so you can you can actually do a lot of analysis to see where you're losing time, where you're gaining time relative to the rest of the field.
1: Awesome. Uh, yeah. What do you have on the docket in terms of future races? Obviously, you have the one coming up in a couple days.
2: Yeah, so yeah, well, I fly out in a couple days, um, and then we'll have training prior to the race. So the race won't be until about a week from now.
1: In case you're listening to this early and want to catch the race we're talking about online, or to date the recording of this podcast if you're late, the next race is on January 13th in Germany, I believe.
2: But, you know, it's been a really, really weird season with COVID. Um, I'm sure. As, you know, as it's been weird for, like, everything in the world. <laughs> um, and so I've been pretty impressed. I, you know, there was definitely a point in time where I thought that our entire competition season would be canceled. And so... um I'm impressed that they've even been able to make it run as they have um them being being the international governing body that hosts the races um but um there's it's looked a lot different in the than in the past years and there's been like a lot more schedule changes and just things are very different and still kind of constantly changing um so i kind of had to go into this season with um knowing that i didn't know ahead of time what my entire race season would look like and having the ability to be really flexible with with things as they changed and so that's definitely continued to happen but um you know i think i know at least what my race schedule looks like through the rest of january which is going to be all racing um in north america um and then i don't know exactly what it will look like after that because what i thought it would look like some things have recently changed um but I'll probably end up back in Europe just because that's where most of our races are being hosted this season to reduce the amount of international travel or global travel that we have to do. Um, And then um, hopefully I think my competition season is going to end relatively early in the winter. The world championships are in February. um, And so I think all of the international races will be done by the end of February. um, But most tracks are open at least through March. So um at that point in time I'll I'll be doing some post season tr- post competition season training.
1: Awesome. Uh, how often do you race in a typical season?
2: So a full uh, a full race season is considered to be 8 races. Um your world ranking is made up of Maximum of eight races. So if you do more than that, um, they just start to drop your lowest race and and take your eight best races. So and then like I mentioned, there's four different international tours, and each of those has eight races on it. So eight races is considered to be a, a full race season. Um, but it's definitely not uncommon to do more than that as you move between different different race tours, and then in addition to that. Um, the season will end with like I already mentioned the world championships that's not part of any one of those race tours so that's an additional race that you would do so I would say on average I'll do maybe 10 to 12
1: races in a season is there any word of, is there but yeah. I had
2: I have one season that I did I think
1: 19 or something crazy wow that's I'm just trying to imagine how long that would yeah.
2: take yeah yeah and, yeah and it's so much travel um, yeah I don't know about
1: is there a place online that we could, that anyone listening could find, um, where or find schedules and potentially where to watch?
2: Yeah. So, um, the international bobsleigh and skeleton Federation's website has the race schedules and that is IBSF.org. Um, but I would say it's probably easier for people to just follow their social media accounts, their Facebook and their Instagram, because, um, they're, they're there with us on tour, the people that run the social media accounts and, and you'll see where we are and you'll get even more insights than the website itself has, which is just kind of a, a dry, dry schedule, but they've got a lot more going on they're talking to us throughout the training week and they'll post videos and photos and stuff um as well as then the the schedules and the, the times and the days for the races as well as information on where to watch um and then as far as where to watch goes uh there is the a youtube channel that the ibsf international Bob science Foundation Federation runs and all of the races are on that YouTube channel and you can live stream them or you can watch them after the fact. Um, but some countries and some places, there are um, different broadcasting companies that have rights to air our footage. And so you might not be able to access the YouTube channel if you're in a certain country and you don't have a VPN to activate it. So. Like in the United States, um, NBC has the rights to all the broadcasting. So if you can't access it on a YouTube channel because it's blocked, you can then go to NBCSports.com and they are it, they will live stream them there. And it's the same it's the same footage and the same commentators. It's just who has the right to air that footage.
1: So what you're saying is, I need to get an ad uh, <laughs> a ad group that is a VPN to.
2: yeah yeah I mean I have a VPN so that I can can easily watch other races going on no matter where I am in the world and that's the main reason that I subscribe and pay for a VPN is so that I can watch (laughs) other races because it's it's really complicated to figure out you know depending on what country I'm in this week where you know where I can watch it so
1: I'm sure I'll definitely be checking that out Uh, other or I guess one main final question that i have is what do you, what would you say to someone who's considering either becoming a bigger fan of skeleton or trying it out
2: um i would encourage people to do either both um yeah so for the fans i think some of the things that i just mentioned going where you can you can follow along um Facebook and Instagram, International Bobsleigh and Skeleton Federation. And then from there, if you want to follow individual athletes and all that, of course, a lot of people, um, you know, have their own social media accounts. Um, and then watching the races. And and if you do watch them on YouTube, also has a chat next to the live stream. And that, I think, is always really fun to because you can see the fans are, like, kind of talking to each other, maybe even talking smack to each other <laughs> as they're watching the live race. So I always... <laughs> I always enjoy reading that. Um, And then if you want to get involved in the sport, um, I would say try and find uh, a a mountain where you can do it um, and, and, you know, look them up online or contact them and and find out, you know, what their availability is for going and, and trying the sport for the first time. Um, in the United States, there are only two mountains. There is um, one in Park City, Utah, which I've already mentioned, and one in Lake Placid, New York, which is an upstate New York and White House
1: Mountains. Hmm. That's not where I would expect, to be honest. I would expect yeah. somewhere like uh, Minnesota or Montana, maybe? Yeah. I don't know. That, well, those maybe, are random I mean, guesses.
2: <laughs> I mean, maybe those sports should, <laughs> or maybe those locations should should also develop some, some facilities for sport. And, yeah, I mean, you know, the more the more accessible the sport is, the more it will grow. So, um, you know, I'm I'm all for there being more facilities. Unfortunately, there there aren't a lot, and that's definitely one of the big barriers to entry to accessing sport.
1: Well, then that's um, there's, where... some great,
2: there's some great ones in Canada. Uh, Whistler, outside of Vancouver, is is a really awesome company.
1: Well, we'll need to get uh, the either Red Bull or X Games to make one of those mountains that we were talking about earlier in Minnesota or Wisconsin.
2: Yeah, well, and what they do for the X Games, I mean, they make them mobile, they move around, and uh, you know, they break them down and, and rebuild them somewhere else, and and so that's that's a great way to get fans because you're going from city to city and people can come out and watch, um, you know, when it comes, the sport comes to them and yeah. So if they were able to do that, I think that would really, um, really, really be great for, for our sport in, in terms of, um, getting it out there and making it more visible.
1: Take notes investors.
2: <laughs> yes.
1: Is there anything else you wanted to mention before I wish you good luck on, uh, your upcoming races?
2: Um, nothing, nothing I can think of. But if you get, if you get any questions from, from fans or from listeners, you know, feel free to, to pass them on to me. Um, and people can, can follow me or contact me on social media. Um, uh, Instagram is just Hey Tannenbaum, which is my last name. And I won't spell it for you here because it's so long, but, um, maybe <laughs> it'll be you'll in the, the title of the that episode. Name, name, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then on Facebook, it's Katie Tannenbaum, Virgin Island Skeleton.
1: Fantastic. Katie Tannenbaum, thank you so much for joining me (laughs) and good luck.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
1: A huge thanks again to Katie Tannenbaum for joining me and talking all things skeleton. I hope you enjoyed learning more about extreme sledding as much as I did. As she mentioned, you can find her on Instagram at ktannenbaum, that's T-A-N-N-E-N-B-A-U-M, and on Facebook by looking up Katie Tannenbaum Virgin Island Skeleton. I'd love to hear any ideas you have for niche sports and athletes I should reach out to for a future episode. So send me a DM at Butler on the air really anywhere online. I'm excited to hear about your ideas. It would also help the podcast out a ton if you subscribed wherever you get your podcasts and left a review, especially on iTunes. Each review helps get the show in new ears and I'd greatly appreciate your 30 seconds of help. Until next time, I'm Tommy Butler and you've been listening to The Ocho.